Hello, welcome to MonarchCast. We're talking royal things. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And today we're covering someone we've sort of covered a lot. A little bit. Accidentally and probably incorrectly. (laughs) Yeah. This is the giant royal oops correction. That's what this episode is. We turned the whole episode into a royal oops. Um, But we're talking about Charles V of Holy Roman Empire and Charles I of Spain. They are the same man. Yeah, he was Charles of several several different kingdoms. Yes, this was probably the most crowned man in Europe in his day. Which was a problem, which we'll talk about. Yeah. But first, I think we've got some royal oops to cover from the last episode. I noticed probably five minutes in, I committed a pretty egregious one, ta- calling Isabella's brother Enrique, Enrique IV, and he was in fact Enrique VI. And I said that several times because I can't read Roman numerals. So you're fired. Yes. Well, this is going to be a solo two, project from now on. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. If, if, if that were grounds for dismissal, we would not have a podcast. No, nope, not at all. <laughs> I have a little one too. Um, I realized there's been several occasions where I've used the word dukedom. I meant duchy, obviously, except for I... Are they not the same thing? I don't know. Is dukedom actually a word? I mean, I was just talking about it, and then I was reading some stuff about Charles, and I was like, duchy. Oh, duchy. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Dukedom is like if you're in line to the throne and you're a duke because they don't call you prince. Uh... Or does that actually? But then there's actually lands involved, so it's you know what? Duchy. <laughs> I don't know the. It's, I don't know the answer. I, I think the correct term is duchy. Uh, well, does that depend on no, which country? No, no. I you're think in? I was just totally incorrect in making up words. <laughs> so, like, it's the duchy of York. Yeah, it wouldn't be the dukedom. No, like, are you sure duchy's not the French? It's duchy. I'm fairly certain. Can we certain. stop saying duchy? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll just, I will try to use the correct term, but I'm pretty sure it's like, not We've said duchy so many times, it's like a reggae song in yeah. here. All right. <laughs> I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. So that was the major egregious error that I made in the first five minutes of our last episode. Um, but now let's get ready for some more oops. Yeah, we don't have any. Because they're going to happen. We don't really have any <laughs> gossip, I don't think. Um, no, I didn't read anything a, interesting this week. It's been a slow summer. I feel like everyone's in hiding. It's been well, hot. they're on vacation. Yeah, it's been hot. Well, I mean, the Sussexes and the Cloonies are apparently new best friends, but who knows? I don't buy that. I don't think that that's worth talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, as Allie mentioned, today we're going to talk about the Holy Roman Empire and Charles, who was Charles V as the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, The reason we're bringing him up is he had several cameos in our series on Henry VIII. He was the nephew of Catherine of Aragon, the one-time fiancé of Mary I. He pops up on several occasions, and we also mentioned the fact that he really did next to nothing to help his niece Catherine when Henry was trying to get rid of her. So today we'll talk about who he was, what the Holy Roman Empire is, and why he was so busy in the rest of Europe to come to his niece's rescue. Um, Why he was busy not helping. Yeah, he he didn't have time for her. 
he really he really didn't um but first i want to talk about what the holy roman empire is and this is oh my god i finally want to know the answer i know well it's 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 a convoluted answer so in the words of voltaire it's neither holy nor roman nor an empire and true he's not wrong so essentially the idea of the holy roman empire and we mentioned this Last time we talked about this briefly, whether or not it was connected to the Byzantine Empire. So the Byzantine Empire did grow out of the Roman Empire when we're talking about Caesar's Rome. Mm -hmm. But then it kind of fizzled away and was taken over by the Ottomans, I believe. Yes. And so... We covered that last time. This is kind of an offshoot or this idea kind of grew out of the remains of the Byzantine Empire. And the idea is this christian empire Mm -hmm. but it's really not the same thing so you know i think a good way to like categorize it right is like rome in its day was like the center of well of the western world right and as its power kind of started to crumble you get these other centers that pop up and it's like they change location based on who's in power and has strength and also they morph and evolve with the religion as well right and i think that's what we see the the course from roman to byzantine to holy roman does that make sense yep in a nutshell you are welcome to uh keep going with that if you'd like to Um, I want I want details now (laughs) all right so essentially in the early middle ages um we're talking the year 800 uh Pope Leo III crowns King Charlemagne who at the time was the king of the Franks as the Holy Roman Emperor and this takes place three centuries after the fall of the Roman Empire so the Franks at this time and Charlemagne he had a pretty vast empire of his own. And the idea here is that they're solidifying his position. They're invoking the might of the Roman Empire. Um, The memory of that was still pretty fresh in the minds of people in Western Europe. The holy portion of it reflects the idea that the Pope supports the emperor. The Catholic Church was heavily involved with the Holy Roman Empire and assisted in the creation of it. And then the Roman aspect is just intended to provide prestige. And of course, the term empire is somewhat aspirational, although at the time of Charlemagne, I think you could make the argument that he did preside over, if not a rather large kingdom, a small empire. And when you say Franks, that's like France? It goes before this. Um, Right, before France, but like... The lands that we would think of as like France, but parts of Germany as well. But much bigger. I mean, essentially at one point he had almost all of Europe. Okay. Um, It was, it's just, it's a completely different thing. And maybe, maybe we'll do him in a later episode. But for now, just know his kingdom was vast. He had consolidated a lot of power and the church got involved and said, yeah, you know what? We'll support this. And the idea is that he supports the Catholic church. He supports the might of the Catholic church. So it's a symbiotic relationship. That's how this was envisioned to work. Um, For a while, the title of emperor descended through Charlemagne, through Charlemagne's line um, until about 899. And then it starts to be contested between a few Italian kings. And in 962, you see Otto I, he's crowned. So 
at, in the beginning, it, it really descended as you might see a typical hereditary title. And then when you have the idea that this empire makes up so many vast and disparate lands, kind of start to see the title of Holy Roman Emperor get kicked around a little bit like a football. So, and yeah, and we're not even talking about that long of a time period here because you're talking about from 800 to 962 that's 160 years right and that had everything to do with the fact that as time goes on you have kings ruling over their own kingdoms and they're yet they're part of the holy roman empire you have these principalities you have these duchies you have um free city states that are part of the empire so you start to see people say well there shouldn't be one family or one dynasty in power and a lot of this was driven by the german princes um they were the elector princes essentially or the prince electors Um, and they began to start electing emperors somewhat strategically in order to check the dynastic power of some of these stronger families Um, the number of electors changed over the years it generally ranged from seven to eleven depending on circumstances at one point it was reduced down to seven and those were mostly the german princes and then there was it expanded to certain rulers who maybe gained some power and wanted to be an elector. And so that itself was a bit of a political process. But And that was also hereditary, as we learned with George I. Yes. So, as I mentioned, this was really controlled by the German princes. They um, inherited these elector titles. And with that came a lot of power. Um, but it is, in name at least an elected office, Um, but this is not by any means a very democratic process. The prince electors were the highest ranking noblemen in the empire, so they themselves exercised a lot of power. And what they would do is they would elect the emperor, but what they would really do is they elected the candidate as king of the Romans, and then the pope would crown him as the Holy Roman Emperor. So this requires the buy-in of the church. So that's where you see that symbiotic relationship really come into play. And they often achieve the title through bribery. We mentioned that a little bit last time. The idea was that you would maintain these family alliances by marriage. So the biggest example of that would be the Habsburgs. Um, And, you know, you might be familiar out there with the Habsburg jaw. And that was the really enlarged lower jaw of the later Habsburg members. And that's a result of all the inbreeding that they did because they would intermarry to preserve their wealth and the power because the Habsburgs really dominated this process of getting elected as emperor. It was not a hereditary title, but you've mentioned this several times, Allie. It really was kept within the family for a large portion of it. Like, technically not hereditary, but you could probably assume if your father or your grandfather are Holy Roman Emperor, then you probably will be as well. And a lot of that is because of the power that they maintained, and so they were able to bribe these German electors to get them on their side. And so you see already, it's each man for themselves. They're not operating like your typical empire monarchy where everyone has a common goal. This is not that. Um, The church also exercised a lot of influence. There's a few instances throughout history where you have a pope excommunicating an emperor because he didn't like how he was handling things, and that was really the only way to get rid of him. So it's, it's by no means what I'm really getting at here is from the very, very beginning, this isn't stable, this isn't centralized, it's not consistent. 
we're, we're not set up for success here. And beyond the Pope at this point, it's called the Holy Roman Empire, but how much of Italy is actually under this control? Parts of it, although all of this kind of waxes and wanes. So generally speaking, for the territories, you see Germany was always a major player, but at various points in history, it also includes parts of France, Luxembourg, Italy, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Belgium, Hungary, Croatia, Poland, and the Netherlands. And this kind of comes and goes depending on who's in power. And we'll talk about that a little bit more with Charles because whoever comes in as emperor, of course, brings in the lands that they themselves may control Mm -hmm. outside of the empire. And that's kind of an issue because what you see is you never have consolidated political power in a centralized government. It's a decentralized entity that's composed of kingdoms, principalities, duchies, counties, free cities. And so as a result... And they might come and go with marriage. Like the borders aren't fixed. Yes. And the princes... Which is bizarre. (laughs) And the princes and the dukes of each of these entities technically owe allegiance to the emperor... But they all operate independently, so there's often infighting between themselves, or maybe they have a problem with the emperor, so they might rise up or rebel, maybe in subtle ways or not so subtle ways. And you'll see all of this when we talk about the reign of Charles. So it's really, we've got the name Holy Roman Empire, we've got the grand idea of it, but in practice, it's, it's nothing special, I guess. Nothing nothing that could last is what I'm trying to say. Um, cooperation between all of the rulers depended largely on who was in power and what else is going on politically throughout the world. So they never at any time had a shared goal of promoting the empire. It's the German princes are pr- promoting their in- interests, which of course are not going to align with the interests of those in Italy or those in Austria or those in the borderlands of France. It's impossible at this time for everybody to have aligned interests. And so all of this sets up the stage for Charles V. So then truly, though, what is the point of this? Like, what power are they getting if it's so reliant on perception? I really think at the beginning the idea was you start with Charlemagne, who is controlling all of these territories. Mm -hmm. And you have the Catholic Church wanting to maintain its power as the dominant religion in Europe. And so they work together to really promote this idea. But as you see these individual kingdoms start to increase in their authority, France becomes a major power. Spain starts to become a major power. England is growing in authority. Italy's got its whole, got a whole thing going on that we'll talk about a little bit. And, and the Ottomans are off in the distance. And so the idea is we're just going to keep promoting this religious authority, but it doesn't always align politically. And I think... And then what happens to the religious authority when the Lutherans come? We will talk about that. All right. But that's, that's the problem is that you never have a shared goal. No one can agree what is the point. Um, yeah. And they're That's all a problem. vying for power, and some of these emperors don't even have that much power. So yeah. it is a problem. So into this mess steps Charles V, and he's probably the most notorious Holy Roman Emperor of the somewhat modern era that we're talking about here. And by modern, I just mean after the Middle after Ages. the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah. Um, and his reign was seen to be somewhat of a disaster, and some people might even argue directly led to the downfall of the Holy Roman Empire. So 
there's a lot to talk about here. But Charles was sort of set up in a very unique position from birth. He is the son of Philip of Austria, who was the Duke of Burgundy. And now Burgundy... Not the House of Burgundy. Not the House of Burgundy. It's it's part of... It's actually the House of Valois. It's part of France, but not part of France. Now it's part of France. Are we talking about like the eastern yes, border Yes, we're of essentially France? talking okay. about the eastern border of France. Um, the wine country? The wine country, yes. So modern day France, of course, includes Burgundy. But back then it was its own entity and it really almost was more aligned with the Netherlands than anything. Um, mm-hmm. I and think we talked about that a little bit. Yeah. We, I think we did a little bit last time. So his father is Philip of Austria and his mother is Joanna of Castile. So we talked about Ferdinand and Isabella last week. She is one of their children. And we referred to her as Juana in that episode. Yes. So Joanna, yes. Juana, depending on which country you're in. But this, of course, makes his maternal grandparents Ferdinand and Isabella. So we're already talking about powerful family lineage just from there but through his father philip of austria we just talked about he's the duke of burgundy that's all well and good but philip's father was maximilian the first the holy roman emperor so i think there was one episode where we may have referred to charles as maximilian's son um but he was actually his grandson but the well, like I- we said this entire episode is a royal oops. yes exactly <laughs> so the idea is he's got really powerful grandparents on both sides and philip of austria actually died pretty young had he not died he probably would have been the holy roman emperor so from the very beginning there were a lot of expectations placed upon charles so he as a result of his family lineage is the heir of three of europe's biggest dynasties so we've got the valois of burgundy the habsburgs of austria and the Trastomaras of Spain, which essentially is coming through Castile. As we mentioned last time, Aragon, just not as important as Castile. But at this time, we can, we can really start talking about Spain as a unified country because when Isabella of Castile died, Joanna or Juana inherited the Castilian throne. And then when Ferdinand died, she also gets Aragon. And we did talk about a little bit... Um, she was declared insane whether or not that's really true in any sense she's actually considered not stable enough to rule on her own so charles ruled alongside her as a co-ruler and he took over the um burgundian throne in 1506 when his father died so he's already the duke of burgundy and coming with this he inherits the eastern lands on the border of france and the netherlands as a Habsburg, he gets Austria and the surrounding territories. And then as a Trastomara of Spain, he gets not only Spain, but remember, Ferdinand was the king of Sicily. So he also mm-hmm. gets parts of Italy. And as a result, he's already the closest to being a universal European monarch since Charlemagne. Not bad. Not, not bad at all. So once Ferdinand dies... As we just mentioned, he takes over as the king of Spain. So he's Carlos I of Spain. And this is the first time you see a monarch over a united Spain. So he's actually considered the first king of Spain. Right, because as we talked about, Ferdinand and Isabella didn't officially join and rule each each other's kingdom together. They right. ruled them like separately together. Right. So he's pretty powerful and... Let me just point out at this time, he's about 19. Yeah. So he's young. He's powerful. 
it's it's just the way all these family dynasties worked out everything lands on one person's shoulders so everyone's already getting a little bit nervous but in 1519 he becomes the holy roman emperor uh, officially known as carl v so he's well we're just going to call him charles <laughs> but yeah. wait but he's he's carl carlos yeah. charles <laughs> it depends on what language you're speaking um, and essentially he wins, we talked about this a little bit before too, he won the War of Bribes. Um, he beat out all the other contenders basically by paying the most in bribes and um, this meant he started his reign in massive debt because of the bribes that he paid. Um, but his main competition for this um, was William the Fourth of Bavaria who was considered a somewhat mild Catholic and Duke Frederick III of Saxony who was what we'd call a Protestant. So already you're starting to see this idea of the Reformation. Remember, this is 1519. Martin Luther did his um, 95 Theses in 1517. And this idea is already spreading like wildfire. So the church is already concerned. So not only did he win the War of Bribes, but he also made the case that he would be an extremist Catholic and he would oppose the Protestant Reformation in any way he could. And so those two things together are what ultimately gave him the title of Holy Roman Emperor. Now, the irony here is that under his reign, Protestantism actually flourished. Um, remember, Germany is where the re- is ground zero of the Reformation, and it's smack dab in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire. Is this the election that also featured Francis trying to throw his hat in the ring and like they mildly considered Henry until they realized he was like too poor to play the game it is and so and Frederick if I'm correct he actually decided no thank you and he he turned it down well because he was a Protestant so there's actually no um requirement that the Holy Roman Emperor be a Catholic although you could imagine how it could be problematic if you were not in any case, yes, Francis and Henry were briefly considered. I think Francis was maybe a stronger contender than Henry, as we talked about, but he wasn't even in the main three anyway. But Francis and Charles, as we will talk about in a little bit, had a lifelong rivalry that stemmed from this process as well um, because Francis was the Holy Roman Emperor Empire made Francis very, very nervous. Um, But first, he takes the throne, and what he does is this brings Spain into the empire. So before this, Spain had not been part of the Holy Roman Empire. So this grows the empire exponentially because not only do you have these vast Spanish lands, but Spain Mm. also claims dominion over parts of Asia and the Americas. So this truly becomes a global empire with the addition of Spain. So as you can imagine, the rest of Europe... If you're not part of the Holy Roman Empire, and even if you are, you're getting a little nervous. Um, his rise caused fear in several of their monarchies because he had so much power. And as a result of this, he's constantly at war on several fronts. He has the Italian wars with France, which we'll talk about, the fight against the Ottoman Turks, and conflict with the German princes over the Reformation. So, Right, because as I mentioned last time, Spain was not the only front at war with the Ottomans. They were essentially had a organized onslaught against pretty much most of Eastern Europe, which would fall squarely under Charles's reign. Yeah. Correct? He, I mean, he's, this is the problem when you have so many territories, is yeah. you've got to defend them all. And he was pretty overextended for most of his reign, starting first with the religious issue. Remember, we just talked about the fact that he's supposed to be this 
conservative Catholic. He's going to stamp out Protestantism. And instead, what you see is um, when Martin Luther essentially launched the Reformation right in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire, a lot of the German dukes see this as an opportunity because even if they elected Charles through bribes, that doesn't mean they're necessarily happy that you have an emperor who controls 80% of Europe. So they see this as a way to check his power. So they support the Reformation and the empire becomes divided. So after several conflicts, Charles acquiesces and says, okay, fine, Protestantism is here to stay. And what you see is Germany becomes divided along religious lines. So you see the north, the east, and a lot of the major cities become Protestant. And this makes sense because that's where the greater concentration of power would be. And then the south and the west remain Catholic. So... Already, Charles' ascension has a fracturing effect inside the Holy Roman Empire because these German princes, as we mentioned, the most powerful nobles within the empire, aren't thrilled with such a powerful emperor. Well, and it's probably in his interest to kind of just let it happen because either you spend all your money and energy fighting this, but as we're going to talk about, he's got a lot more on his plate. Yeah, had there been nothing else going on, Maybe the outcome would have been different. I just think he thought it's not really worth my time. Because as we... as you said, he's like young and inexperienced. So maybe he doesn't view it as 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 much of a threat as maybe he could. And who knows how much he really cared about Catholicism maintaining its stronghold in Europe. I mean, who knows? Um, Because he had his own conflicts with Rome, and we'll talk about that too. (laughs) But the first thing we see is not only is this reformation going on, but we've also got the problem of the Ottomans that we just briefly talked about. So by 1526, the Ottomans had pushed their way into Hungary. And we're talking about the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turks, really, you know, not not Christian. That's the problem, is this going back to this fear that Europe will fall to a non-Christian nation, empire, that fear is still going strong. And the Ottomans represented a very valid fear. Um, By 1529, they had laid siege to Vienna. So Charles's armies actually kept them from continuing on into Rome, but he never really had a decisive victory over the Ottoman Empire. He never really pushed them back out of Europe. And so... Essentially, they took over the Mediterranean, which caused a lot of headaches for his Spanish territories because, remember, Granada is right there. So he's fighting them on the Spanish front. He's fighting them in Italy. Italy. He's, you know, he's he's just fighting them all over, and again, he's overextended. And I believe they had already, at this point, already occupied, taken over Greece yeah, as well. they're starting to really spread and... All they're really doing is keeping them at bay. They, they never drive them back. It's not like Ferdinand and Isabella driving the Muslims out of Spain. This is really... No, you're just keeping them from progressing further. Yeah. And so essentially throughout his entire reign, he's at war with the Ottomans. And um, he's never really able to defeat their own expansion into an empire. So this keeps him busy, but it's it's not really a win in his win column. And so as all of this is going on, you also have the problem with France. Now, we just talked about this a little bit, but Francis I was a consistent nemesis for Charles. Um, France is essentially in the middle of a Habsburg sandwich. 
So you've got Spain over here, you've got Austria over here, you've got Italy down here. Essentially, all the lands around France are controlled by either the Habsburgs or Charles, who is a Habsburg and is now the Holy Roman Emperor. So Francis, that's one of the reasons why he probably threw his hat into the ring was to protect France because... Also, he wanted Burgundy back. Well, yeah, and that's how he would get it. But yeah, th- this idea of Charles becoming the Holy Roman Emperor made him extremely nervous. And it's funny because I read something that said that he actually considered Charles to be his subject because Burgundy was in France. And it was a sort of a contested territory, but it, it the French considered it to be part of France. And so Char- Francis was like, well, Charles, you're the Duke of Burgundy, so technically I'm in charge of you. Um, but Charles really didn't see it that way. And over the years, they engaged in several wars, and Francis was actually taken hostage at one point. So what this is is that these are known as the Italian Wars. And I'm going to try to do a very, very, very brief, high-level overview of this because there's about five or six of these conflicts, maybe more, Um, that started before Francis took the throne and continued on after he died, this uh, French conflict in Italy. And it all kind of centers around Milan. So by the time Francis takes the throne, the French had conquered the territory of Milan under Louis XII. So remember, let's talk about Italy for a second. Italy is not one consolidated nation at this point. You've got Sicily, you've got the essentially the city-states. So remember, we've got the Vatican in Rome, but we've got the Medici's running um, Florence. Florence. You've got Venice, who is kind of a power here. So all through Italy... And Naples. Yes, exactly. So all through Italy, you've got a lot of powerful city-states, but they're all kind of controlled by different countries, not just the Italians Um, and the idea of the Italians isn't even really a thing so as I just mentioned France had conquered the territory of Milan and around that time Pope Julius had become concerned because the Venetians are starting to increase their territory so he forms an alliance with France Spain and the Holy Roman Empire to fight them so what happens is the alliance between Louis of France and the Pope starts to break down and the Pope actually switches sides and fights with the Venetians against France. When he does this, he also brings in England, Spain, and the Empire to his side. So when Louis dies, Francis continues the war and by the time Charles takes over as emperor, there's a lot of bad blood between France and the Habsburgs and this conflict is just ongoing. So then you have Pope Leo X who supported Francis's candidacy for emperor because he's concerned about this consolidated power of Charles. And it's not just that he controls so much of Europe, it's specifically because Charles controls Naples, which is only 40 miles from the Vatican. So the Pope, he's really concerned. And yet at this time, the Pope really did operate as the ruler of this part of Italy. They have armies, they have... It's not like nowadays where you just kind of have the Pope sitting in the Vatican and he's blessing people and, you know, there's no real, like, political power. Back then, that wasn't the case. Um, But even Pope Leo eventually switches sides, leaving Francis on his own. So France eventually lost Milan and Francis was captured by Charles. Um, And to get him back, the French actually tried to ally with the Ottomans. 
So this is all interrelated. You can see why Charles was so busy during his reign. Um, but this conflict continues with France after the death of Francis. And we might talk about a little bit more of this more specifically when we talk about Francis. But he's just a constant thorn in Charles's side. And so all of this kind of culminates in 1555. Paul IV is now Pope. And during this time period, we have a string of popes because they kept getting elected and dying. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of them. But by the time you get to Paul IV, he's essentially on the side of France. So the idea that Charles could unite the empire and really consolidate the power in Europe and take over all these territories essentially dies with um, the pope once again moving to the side of France. And that's basically... Well, because- You kind of touched on this, but the important thing to remember, and I briefly covered some of this, I think, last time, is the Pope is not, at this point in time, necessarily elected based on his credentials as a religious man. I mean, these cardinals are granted cardinalships and bishoprics and, you know, whatever, basically because of what family they belong to, who they are. These might not even necessarily be devout men. So these powerful families are essentially paying their way into the papacy, and people are going along with it because, you know, you make um, alliances and get yourself power. And so you're talking about, like, Charles's allyship is dying out, right? Yeah, and the and that's, I think, the general idea here is that depending on what's going on politically elsewhere in the world, the loyalties really do wax and wane. And so he never gets a real grip on power as the emperor. And... Mm-hmm. Um, this all kind of comes to head in 1526 you have the sacking of rome which is like a real blemish on charles's record as the holy roman emperor so at this time you have pope clement the seventh we know him yes you might remember him as the pope who was tangling with henry the eighth the one who didn't want to decree on the divorce (laughs) exactly and and at the time you know You might say, oh, well, of course the Pope doesn't want to see a huge Catholic divorce, but he also had a lot going on. So a lot of this reason why he was sort of dithering over the divorce is that he's got a lot going on with Charles. So Charles and Clement did not see eye to eye at all. Charles felt that the Papal States were too big, and the Pope didn't like the idea of all this power being consolidated in Charles. So each of them was suspicious of the other thinking that they were too powerful um and this time in the series of italian wars charles is the one who's on the outs and everybody else is allied against charles and you might remember this a little bit from when we talked about henry the eighth when um catherine's trying to get henry to not be friends with france and henry keeps forming alliances with france and then they go after charles and then and of course charles and henry reconcile and they go after france that's right. what all of this is and at this point england is obviously allied with the pope because england wants the Pope to declare that the king is allowed to remarry. Yeah, he's trying to get him on his good side. So when we talked about all that back and forth last time, this is sort of the other side of that. But unfortunately for Charles, his troops at this time are underpaid and underfed, and they're about ready to mutiny. So what they do is they march into Rome, and they sack it and imprison the Pope. So this kind of sets all of Catholic Europe on edge, Even though at this time Charles controls much of Italy by 1530 with the sacking of Rome, he doesn't have a great reputation, he's way overextended, and these 
conflicts with Italy just continue on for years. They just drain him of resources and it's it's just it's never ending and as we Um, mentioned like the sacking of rome was entirely the doing of his soldiers like he took credit for it after the fact probably to save face but also because it was advantageous but this wasn't this is just an example of like his poor leadership right like this huge momentous thing happened and he has nothing to do with it yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't end the conflict in Italy. They just keep going. And the problem is that Italy, as we mentioned, they're fighting amongst themselves. And then you get all of these other kingdoms getting involved because they have their own power and their own interests. And they're all just kind of squabbling over all of these Italian territories. And that just keeps going until the end of Charles's reign. So Charles didn't actually die as Holy Roman Emperor. He abdicated, not only as Holy Roman Emperor, but as the King of Spain. He was exhausted. So in 1556, he just says, you know what, I've had enough. I just want to retire to a monastery to live out the rest of my life in peace. So the Holy Roman Empire goes to his brother Ferdinand and the Spanish Empire, which truly, truly was its own empire at this point. Remember, we've got the Americas. They're pressing into Asia. I think at this point they control the Philippines. They control a lot of territory. That goes to his son, Philip II of Spain, who we have talked about before. He is the one that actually marries Mary I of England. So... Charles was originally intended for Mary, but she ended up marrying his son. Um, Although, as you may remember, that marriage was very short and didn't result in any children. But what's their age difference? um, I think Philip and Mary were actually somewhat close in age. Yeah. Um, She may have been a little older than him because when she was betrothed to Charles, he was 16 years older than her. Yeah, and she was like three she was six yeah it was it would have it didn't really it it didn't really make sense for him to marry her and I didn't actually talk about this in this but um Charles actually when he was really young he he took the throne so there wasn't really a lot of pressure for him to get married and have kids because he was so young and healthy um but as this saga kind of continued on he realized even if he wanted to marry Mary, which it wasn't really politically advantageous for him to do so, he really couldn't afford to wait. She was so much younger than him, he needed to marry somebody who was you know, already capable of having children. So he actually married Isabella of Portugal. And they were madly in love and had quite a happy marriage. Now her, um, her mother was Maria? I don't know. I didn't look it up. But if, if I'm thinking about the timeline... Her, if she's of Portugal, now remember, the Portuguese king married two of Isabella's daughters, one of whom died in childbirth, and the other, so I'm guessing her mother was probably Maria. They were somewhat related. This is another grandchild of Isabella and Ferdinand. In any case, they had a really happy marriage. She died in childbirth, though, and apparently he was so distraught, he went to a monastery for two months. And just mourned her in private. So, um, yeah, kind of sad. But um, that didn't really have much to do with his role as the Holy Roman Emperor. So I didn't really put it in here. But by the end of the reign, he's he's just he's fed up with this. He's exhausted from the constant war, and he just he just wants to retire. So he actually died two years after he abdicated. Um, and interestingly, Spain and the Empire maintained really friendly relations 
for the rest of the duration of the empire, even though Spain, once once it goes to Philip, it's no longer part of the Holy Roman Empire. So this is this is what I mean about the territories come and they go, and you never really have a consolidated source of power. And this feeds directly into the fall of the empire. So after the reign of Charles, the empire continues on for a few more years. Well, really a few more 100 years, technically, but it continues to lose territory and influence, and it's basically finally dissolved in 1806 after the last emperor, Francis II, abdicates after being defeated by Napoleon. So at this point, you're starting to see these populist revolutions take place in Europe, and there's really no place for this really antiquated idea of the Roman Empire. Um, the Habsburg branch, however, did manage to hold on to their power. They ruled Austria and Hungary until World War I, and uh, the Prussian territories evolved into modern-day Germany. So you see the remnants of it even today, but it was never really truly an empire, and it certainly wasn't the Roman Empire, and I, I, I mean, the word holy just kind of is thrown in there for funsies. Yeah, so I think Marie Antoinette was a Habsburg, right? I believe so. Yeah. So, like, these people are going to continue to pop up throughout history. Um, like, we've already talked about George I coming out of this in a way. Yeah, they maintain their power. I mean, this Habsburg family, you know, it's it's they are Europe, <laughs> European monarchy. Yeah, like the Holy Roman Empire in the if we're talking about the late sixteen, early seventeen hundreds, like it's still it's a still thing. around. It's just not as much yeah. as it was. Like you yeah. know, we've got these German princes that are still maintaining these electorates for whatever that means for them, and you know, we've got. Austria and Hungary, I think the Habsburgs being the, the really the main surviving remnant of this up until the early, early 20th century. Arguably, it was only powerful when you have Charlemagne. And then, mm-hmm. and then you can't really continue. Because as you mentioned, there's intermarriage. One son will go off here and become king of another country. And, you know, at one point in time, it covered Bohemia and... That didn't stick around. Um, the Netherlands eventually left. I mean, eventually as you see these individual kingdoms start to develop more and more of their own power, they have no, there's no benefit to sticking with it. Well, right. You have to get everybody to buy into this idea. And like, it never seems to trump the matters at home, right? Like your own personal interests of your kingdom or whatever you're ruling are more important. And then I think basing it in religion as well, like as these German territories one by one start being more and more Lutheran, more Protestant, the idea of being controlled by, even if it's not necessarily a Catholic empire, but heavily influenced by the Pope, I would imagine there's no incentive to stay. Like the Netherlands were very Protestant after a while. So what interest do they have in being part of this you know, papist kind of organization. I mean, there isn't any. And that, yeah. that's, it was essentially a failure from the beginning. And like you, you just said, there's no buy-in. No one, yeah. no one has a reason to stick with it. And I mean, it's not like we're talking about a German empire that expanded. No. It's, it's, it's really just kind of like uh, individual entities and they all agree that someone has to be in charge 
but then there's no army, there's no taxes, there's no system of government to control everything. How it's do you just pay a for big this, old mess. Right? Yeah, you can't pay. It's just a big old mess. And Charles was only as successful as he was, which is a relative term, because of Spain, because of the Americas and the gold that Cortez was getting for the Spanish. Well, and also because of, like, these thrones that he held independent of the Holy Roman Empire, right? So. Right. Yeah. Like, so. maybe he's not powerful because he's Holy Roman Empire and has all these lands, but because of all these other lands. So, this is really fascinating, you know. I I would imagine it's not a easy thing to be born into. Like, it sounds really great, and you've got a bunch of kingdoms in Europe that are in awe of your supposed power, but it just sounds like one giant headache. Yeah, and I think that's why when people say, oh, the Holy Roman Empire, what's that? And then it's just kind of like crickets because you can't really explain it. It's not, yeah. it's not what you would think of as an empire. I mean, actually, I had friends travel recently, and they were like, oh, we're drinking beers in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire. And, like, I actually have no idea where they were. <laughs> I should well, find that maybe out. they were in Germany. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Because that was the middle. <laughs> But I didn't I didn't actually check where they went. <laughs> so that's that. It's kind of a short one. I didn't know that Charles V abdicated until I was doing my research for this. So I think I did know that. Um, but I think I think you're right. I mean, the, the, the most important part of this, like at least in the context that we were covering him is why was Charles so unwilling or unable to help his aunt maintain her, her throne? And as we can see, he had a lot of other pressing matters further to the south, which is really interesting, right? Considering Isabella's goal was to align England with Spain so that she could bring them into what she considered to be more important European matters, but that ultimately wasn't really what happened, right? Like, they still kind of stay isolated, and the rest of Europe is kind of like, we cannot be bothered with you and your petty marriage dramas. Like, we've got Ottomans on our left flank, and you know, France on the right and like, or, you know, whichever God knows what's happening in Italy. Whatever direction you're facing, okay, Ottomans on the east and France on the west and, you know, this whole mess happening in Italy and, you know, my soldiers have suddenly taken the Pope captive. I got to go deal with that. So yeah, he just, he had, he had no bandwidth to deal with it. And, and I think also too, I mean, no reason. Right. I mean, also too, like, okay, she might be family, but she's still just a woman. So who cares? Right. I mean, He's got bigger, manlier things to worry about. Yeah, this is very true. So, All right, so I think we are taking a holiday break next time. Yes, we're taking a week off. Um, it's Labor Day. We're both traveling, so it's just, it's a little, it's a little too much to get an episode done. But that will take us into September and we will do Francis the first king of France to round Mm -hmm. out our uh, supporting players in the Henry VIII saga and then I think we're going to come back with a few more new episodes but um, we haven't yet decided what we're going to cover so if anybody has any ideas hit us up on Instagram let us know what you're interested in let us know if you like how things are going if you'd like to hear more Uh, specific stories you know I think sometimes it's easy to do a full biography and you don't really get into the meat of um, a person's life and sometimes it's fun to just cover a more focused episode so let us know if you like things like that and we're totally open to that as well yeah 
So let us know. Enjoy your week off, and we'll see you in September. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.